Good morning. It's good to be back again. It seems ages since I've been here, and that probably is because it's ages since I've been here. Um, can I also say that we have friends in Aberdeen who celebrated their golden wedding last night, and all three of their children are married. All but one of the nine grandchildren I dedicated. Uh, Gran's funeral I took. And the fourth member of the family gets married in two years' time, and I've been asked to take that. So I was up late and dead involved last night up in Aberdeen. And I was up very early this morning to get down here for now. So the only person allowed to fall asleep in the service this morning (laughs) is not you. One of the... I think one of the verses, but certainly one of the chapters, and I suppose therefore one of the books in the Bible, that I think says a great deal to the world we live in today, if we hear this book properly, and try not so much to understand every verse and every word, but grasp the scale and the sweep of what it's about. That's the book of Revelation. You've just sung, What a Mighty God We Serve. The issue of power and might lies at the very center of the future for our world. And here is a book at the back of the New Testament, which actually in many books is the place of emphasis, not the first, but the last word. And in it, there's a vision of a throne. And I want to read it before we then sing our first hymn. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. We'll come back to that passage. Let's share together in prayer. Let us pray together. Loving God, we sing a hymn about others and otherness. And we thank you for the diversity, the difference, the variety of your creation. We thank you that you are a God who in rich creativity, in generous purpose, in outgoing love, creates and sustains. And you love all that you have made. We come here to this place again, on this day again, 
to open our minds and our hearts to the presence of your Spirit, to the teaching of your Word, and to fellowship and friendship with each other. We thank you that you are the God who in Father, Son, and Spirit expresses all the possibilities of union and self-giving love, harmony and identity, all drawn together and held together by that same love. And so though we meet here, others in this city meet elsewhere, yet in Christ we are bound together. And so as we lift up our own voices in praise, as we take time to pray the things that concern us in our own hearts and minds, so we join with others, not only in the city and this country, but across your whole created world. We ask the blessing of your presence, a sense of your peace, guidance for our living, and rich resources of love, compassion, and mercy to serve your world in the name of Jesus and for the glory of your name. Amen. The reading is from Genesis chapter 16, and Brian's going to read that for us. Thank you. We listen for the word of God. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne him any children. But she had an Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Why don't you sleep with my slave? Perhaps she can have a child for me. Abram agreed. So she gave Hagar to him to be his concubine. This happened after Abram had lived in Canaan for ten years. Abram had intercourse with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she found out that she was pregnant, she became proud and despised Sarai. Then Sarai said to Abram, It's your fault that Hagar despises me. I myself gave her to you, and ever since she found out that she was pregnant, she has despised me. May the Lord judge which of us is right, you or me. Abram answered, very well, she's your slave, and under your control, do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai treated Hagar so cruelly that she ran away. The angel of the Lord met Hagar at a spring in the desert on the road to Shur and said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She answered, I'm running away from my mistress. He said, go back to her and be her slave. Then he said, I will give you so many descendants that no one will be able to count them. You are going to have a son, and you will name him Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your cry of distress. But your son will live like a wild donkey. He will be against everyone, and everyone will be against him. 
he will live apart from all his relatives. Hagar asked herself, have I really seen God and lived to tell about it? So she called the Lord who had spoken to her, a God who sees. That is why people call the well between Kadesh and Bered the well of the living one who sees me. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and he named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old at the time. A prophet's not necessarily someone who foretells the future. It can be somebody who, in speaking, speaks ahead of his or her time. One such was Bishop Kenneth Cragg, whose book, The Call of the Minaret, is still one of the finest expositions of the Muslim mind and the Islamic faith written by a Christian and deeply respected by Muslim people. Amongst the other things that he worked for was peace and reconciliation between Jews, Christians, and the Arab nations. And that often reflected itself in his prayers. I want to use one of these prayers now as a prayer of intercession. It comes in three parts, and between the three parts, we're going to sing the response, Kyrie eleison. Let us pray. The story, Lord, is as old as history, as remorseless as humanity. Man, the raider, the plunderer, the terrorist, the conqueror, defiling the light of dawn with the conspiracies of night, perverting to evil the fine instruments of nature, dealing fear among the tents and the homesteads of the unsuspecting or the weak, confiscating, purloining, devastating. Passions are more subtle in our time. The firepower of bombs for the dust clouds of cavalry. Napalm and incendiary and machines in the skies. Devices for war decrying the stars. New skills with the same curse of destruction. The sanctity of humanity in the jeopardy of techniques. Gracelessness against the majesty on high. By the truth of the eternal exposure, 
by the reckoning of the eternal justice, by compassion upon kin and kind, by the awe of thy sovereignty, turn our deeds, O good Lord. Repair our ravages, forgive our perversities, O God, give peace, grateful peace. Sheila watches Casualty religiously every week. I don't. I'm too put off by blood and scalpels and all the other stuff that goes with accident and emergency. And in any case, it's far too complicated a plot. So in a recent episode, I was that really, really annoying person who happened to come into the room at the beginning, or sorry, just near the beginning of the program, sat down and began to ask questions. Who's that? Why does this woman walk in and slap a patient in the face? Why does that nurse not like him? Who's the guy outside the hospital with the mobile phone diagnosing rare conditions? What's she crying for? You see, the problem is, for me, there is no context. I don't know the previous story. I don't know the network of relationships and the dynamics that are working out on the screen. And I don't know all that much about the individual characters and their stories. So I'm likely to misinterpret what's going on. The guy with the mobile, is he a taxi driver? Is he an ex-boyfriend? Is he a delusional ex-patient who thinks he's a consultant? Or a consultant who genuinely can diagnose neurological disorders? And in any case, she doesn't hate him. She loves him, but he dumped her. Right. Okay. Anyway, where's Charlie? Because he's usually fixed these things. So you need to know what each episode is, how it fits into the series, how the series fits into the overall narrative of a serial that has been running for a long time in order to understand what's happening now at this moment. And so we come to Hagar. So what sense did you make of Genesis chapter 16 when we didn't read 15 or 14 and beyond, nor 17 or 18 and beyond? What sense do we make today of a story where a childless woman tells her husband to have sex with her maid, to have a child, and so surrogate motherhood does actually exist in the Bible? And Abram agrees. And Hagar conceives. Hagar is fertile. Sarah isn't. Hagar is pregnant. Her mistress is barren. Hagar feels superior. And Sarah feels humiliated. What a domestic mess. So Hagar is given a hard time. And has to run away into the desert just to survive. Now these are the bits of the drama in today's episode. And it's Hagar who's the casualty. But then it gets a bit weirder. Hagar has no rights. Let's just think about the culture of her time. She is as disposable as a worn-out kitchen. 
a broken washing machine, or a car that's starting to cost too much in repairs and its mileage is climbing. So sending her away was culturally, economically, and morally the sensible thing to do. We think it's cruel, but not then. In any case, she was an Egyptian. So she was a reminder for both Sarah and Abraham of that previous episode, which maybe you didn't see or remember, when Abraham and Sarah lied to Pharaoh to protect God's promise. What promise? Oh, sorry, that was another episode that you missed. That was the promise at the start of the series, where God said he would make of Abraham a great nation, that he would have children, but no children were coming. Get it? That's where Hagar comes in, you see. She's the backup position. Except, if it's God who made the promise, surely God doesn't need a backup position that we provide. So while Hagar is surviving beside fresh water in the desert, living as a nomad, the angel of the Lord just happens by. And at that stage... That Old Testament story becomes quite important, actually crucially important for us these thousands of years later. This angel of the Lord just happened by. And this banished woman, this excluded Egyptian, this one who is not part of Abraham's promise, is given her own promise and is seen by God and is the only woman in the entire Jewish tradition, who gives God a name. The God who sees. Compassion, protection, accompaniment, provision, all require you to be able to see. The presuppose sight. All signs then that God sees Hagar. And blesses and cares for Hagar and Ishmael. So back Hagar goes. We're not given any explanation. There are no scenes of reconciliation. We missed that episode as well. And Hagar is now back. Still a casualty. But then we have to move from casualty to EastEnders. Because the whole thing becomes as convoluted as humanly complex, as anguished and agonizing as the Christmas episodes of EastEnders tend to be. Another series I don't usually watch, but occasionally the fascination of the horrible draws me in. Sarah does become pregnant. Isaac is born. And Ishmael, who is older, is now a threat. So the ill feeling and the toxic looks begin to grow. There's a kind of snarling hostility can be assumed. A simmering violence if things are not dealt with. This is all now about household, family, dynastic power and the promise. So Sarah again tells Abraham to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. And this time God agrees and says, yeah, Abraham, do that. So again into the desert. And with no water, Hagar gives up. Now you can read that two or three chapters later. It's cruel, it's tragic, it's unfair, and you're left wondering as you read these chapters what kind of God plays such pick and choose between human lives. So a mother abandons her child in the desert 
because she happened to be Egyptian and one day was bought by Sarah and came out of Egypt as an illegal asylum seeker. And she does as she's told as a slave. And she sleeps with Abraham and there's a child. And the child is born and grows. And now they're sent away to perish in the desert a second time. But the angel comes back again. And provides water. And promises she too will be the mother of a great nation. Guides her to safety. And that's the last we hear of Hagar in the Old Testament. But just before we move on, just listen to what happened at that moment of the great promise between Abraham and God in the covenant that was made. When Abraham fell face down, he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. You see, we tend to forget that twice Abraham struggled with God about the life of a son. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful. And will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers. And I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Whom Sarah will bear to you. By this time next year. And what you have. Is a God not of one promise. But of two. At which point. Let's just stop the fancifulness of casualty. Eastenders and soap opera. Family mess-ups and ancient cultural practices like slavery, compulsory surrogacy, polygamy. This is actually a story of how God began to be made known to his people. It's a story, it's there in the Bible, we need to deal with it. And it's a story of enormous potency into the 21st century. It is a politically explosive story. It's Hagar who names God as the God who sees. And it is the same God who heard the cry of Ishmael in the desert. The crying of the child in distress. The same verbs about God hearing and the boy crying are used of God hearing the cries of Israel generations later in Egypt. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is also the God of Hagar and Ishmael. This is the God who sees the excluded. This is the God who notices the marginalized. The God who hears the cry of the oppressed and who comes in grace and help as the angel of the Lord happens by. And if you're confused about just what God is playing at here, then maybe that's because indeed God's ways are not our ways and God doesn't deal in the neat, tidy certainties we like to deal with. But from this story come some of the most important truths of the entire Jewish and Christian traditions. And I want to draw them together because they're important for how we live and how we look upon this world that is a world so divided, so fragmented, 
and where ancient enmities are given religious and theological justification, and often a theological justification the biblical text won't bear. So from Abraham and Sarah comes the great nation out of which the whole world will be blessed. From Hagar came the great nations of the desert, the nomadic peoples. Now just listen again, just a short passage from the same part, Genesis chapter 17. And listen exactly to the parallels here. I will establish my covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and will make him into a great nation. There are one or two ways in which this story of the wronged woman Hagar comes rumbling down the centuries to us into the 21st century world. Read this story and you are being made to think again about some of the greatest questions of our time. If you read it as Jewish scripture, it confirms election, the chosenness of the people of God, and the divine right to land. If you read it as Quranic scripture, it shows that from the beginning, the father of the Arab nations was wronged, disinherited, robbed of land as the real firstborn. Read it as a Christian, and you are left with a deeply subversive truth about God. One is elected by God and chosen, but the unchosen is also treasured. The unchosen Ishmael is treasured and saved. What on earth? The phrase is deliberately chosen. What on earth could that mean? See, as human beings, we think of election as a kind of exclusion thing. Us, not them. God never does. Every time in the Old Testament, election is calling to service, not to privilege, which is incidental. The service is essential, the privilege is incidental, and the privilege is to be served, is to serve. And so what you have is that this one people who are chosen is the people through whom all other people will be blessed. And the God who sees the misery of Israel in Egypt is the God who generations earlier saw the misery of a mother and her son in the desert. Abraham was indeed tested in the sacrifice of Isaac, but he was deeply tested too in the banishing of Ishmael. And both acts of Abraham depended on trusting God as a God of compassion, mercy and faithfulness, whose mysterious, purposeful ways would in the end be seen to have a creative, redemptive outcome. So what? Well, as a Christian today, living in the consumer-driven, pluralist, globalized, multicultural 21st century, so what? Well, maybe, with religion declining in the West and religiously driven conflict and violence across the world, we should just be a bit careful about the casual so what. An Egyptian female slave and a surrogate mother 3,000 years ago gets chased into the desert, meets God, and survives. So what? Reading this story, you realize things you think you didn't know. And then you realize that there are ideas here that begin to shape the way we see the world. 
And so if we engage with the politics of the world for a moment and go back to that word peace and the problem of theology and the way theology and religion get in the way of peace, there is a history of hatred and suspicion and atrocity between Palestinian and Jew, between the nomadic nations and the modern nation states. But the Hagar story is either the triumph of the Jew or the usurping of the Arab peoples is an either-or that lies behind so much of what is tragically wrong in one part of our world. Both of them contest land. One of the great privileges of my life was working alongside Dr. Elner Walker for a time, who was a member of Crown Terrace Baptist Church before dying tragically at an early age. And she worked in Nazareth Hospital. She was a friend of Elias Shakur, a Christian Palestinian, with deep, deep roots into all three monotheistic traditions. Blood Brothers was the name of his book. Somebody who tried to live out what Paul's great vision was, that there'd be neither Jew nor Greek, a ministry of reconciliation. This Hagar story still reverberates beneath the surface of modern Middle Eastern politics. And as Christians, we read both stories of Isaac and of Ishmael. And we remember Colossians, that great passage that talks about the reconciliation of all things. I wish we'd stop watering down some of Paul's great words like that. When he said all things, he meant all things. He couldn't have used a word that was less ambiguous. The reconciliation of all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so whatever else is happening, either in the Middle East or in other places of conflict in our world, as Christians, if we are peacemakers, if we want to be called children of God, we do what Carol Barth said. We lift up our holy hands in prayer against the status quo. And that means we also need to begin to see the community in which we live in the light of this story. Because here's how Hagar can be described in any culture. Rejected woman, single mother, homeless bag lady, other woman, pregnant teenager, asylum seeker, foreign unsupported female, refugee with child, victim of human trafficking, abused partner, exploited slave. Actually, any one of these would describe this woman from some part of her story. So who are the Hagars in our culture? How do we as the people of God greet and treat and reach out to such? How do we do as God does? Treasure the unchosen. See with compassion. Provide presence. That would be to embody the mercy of God. And I may have said here before, because I say it quite often, I'm really quite impatient when we begin to be so angst and anguished about what is mission today. Well, maybe mission is to treasure the unchosen, to see with compassion, to provide presence, to embody the mercy of God. And that means we need to know our own prejudices. Because here's a story that Jews, Muslims and Christians all read differently. How do we read that world out there? One of the great words that we throw around in college, and we don't allow it to be thrown around without grabbing it, looking at it and understanding it, is hermeneutics. Interpreting the world around us. Interpreting that culture. Interpreting that community. 
interpreting not only the text of Scripture, but the text of the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph, whichever one we want to read, or the Guardian or the Observer, the text of the television news. That kind of interpreting in the light of God's Word means that this story throws a quite different light on many of the reportages that we read and, if we're not careful, just absorb. One of the great books Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote was The Dignity of Difference. This story is about the dignity that God confers on difference. There's a wonderful photograph which I have on my computer at home of Rowan Williams and Jonathan Sachs standing outside the gates of Auschwitz. Now remember when I read the article about it and I took a copy of the photograph. When theology and politics combine, you either get a Hitler or a Bonhoeffer, a tyrant, or a martyr. This story of Hagar is one of the great scandals of the Bible. It's a rock of stumbling. It is there to trip us up and make us look more carefully the next time. Because inclusion is not actually about political correctness. It lies at the heart of the gospel. The reconciliation of all things. The great company of heaven from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve tribes of Ishmael. Black and white, rich and poor, Arab and Jew, and at the center of that great vision, the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, the center of the throne. Not empire and power and exclusion, but a kingdom founded on self-giving love, open to all who enter. The Christian is not one with no bias, but one whose bias is set towards peace, reconciliation, mercy, inclusion, compassion and yes the treasuring of the other once we are no people now we are brought near so to finish Hagar this woman in all her ambiguity and her otherness used and abused and rejected foreign female and single unwanted disposable and powerless the one in whom is embodied, nevertheless, the cherishing of God, the treasuring of the other, the welcome to the stranger, the gospel, the good news, that the not chosen is still blessed, and the chosen are called to serve all, not to be served. So it was, you see, with the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, from the east and the west from Israel and Ishmael, from Greek and Jew, from slave and free, because the great vision of the New Testament is all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. Praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor, and power and strength, be to our God forever and ever. Amen.